Hello, hello, and welcome. Today we talk with Shaun from Celtic Myths and Legends podcast. Her podcast is more of an off-the-cuff style, which she admits to and which we absolutely enjoy. So thanks for joining me here today and listen to her talk about her topic. Funnily enough, amid the crazy storms on her end and the weird internet issues on my end, we still managed to record the episode with very little problem. So sometimes I might cut out a little bit and I apologize for that. But overall, I was impressed at how clear everything sounded. As you may have guessed, I talk to everybody, academics, students, scholars, amateurs, and of course, podcasters, pretty much anybody who's very passionate talking about their topic. And as you can see, not all the topics here are Canadian, but I am. I'm a Francophone from Canada. My name is Rosie, and this is my podcast. I guess now it's time to delve into the history, eh? I just want to say your podcast is a favorite around here. <laughs> oh, no, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. I'm glad you enjoy it. <laughs> I would just like to know, how did you get interested in folklore? My interest in folklore is for, you know, a number of reasons. You know, I think folklore is incredibly interesting as a historical tool. Um, you'll know as a historian as well um, that, you know, we've got archaeology and we have literature and they're held up as the biggest forms in which to study history and you know as they should be they're they're physical they're you know they're there for us to study but I do think that folklore holds up a mirror to people um, and it shows you know the sort of things um, not only that we fear that we're interested in that we love but also it shows how we view the world um, and I think in that sense, folklore is incredibly interesting and incredibly useful. And I think it's been underrated as a historical tool, if you want to look at like the history of like studying and things like that. Of course, you know, folklorists have been an academic department or whatever for a while now, but I still think that folklore is very underrated in terms of what it can actually tell us about the past and what it can tell us about the people of the past. Mm -hmm. And how did folklore start? How did we figure out that it's such a, a good art to use? Not only is it storytelling, but it's oral history. If you don't have a way to write things down, of course, you're still going to have collective communal knowledge and stories and um, genealogies and things like that. You're still going to have things that need to be passed on. So I'm not, you know, an expert in the whole history of history, but by my guess, folklore must have been just it must have been born out of this need for human beings to pass down knowledge. Um, you can look at tribes of the past and say there would have been one set storyteller or it would have been a community thing or parents would have said stories to their children. But there must have been some sort of system for us passing down knowledge um, and also stories and also things like that. So if you look at bards in like medieval Wales, for example, they weren't just entertainers. They weren't just singing songs or telling stories of like giants and maidens. Um, they were also historians. You know, they were a huge reason why a lot of um, genealogy was kept record of. You know, they would be employed by the king. They would be very, very important to the court, and they would really study. You know, the genealogy of kings. Um, 
much in the same way that a lot of historians have done that are connected to kings or emperors or whatever. You know, a lot of their job is to really study where this person was from and, you know, sometimes make up that, you know, their ancestors and things like that. But yeah, history and genealogy and storytelling are all very much linked. So again, why folklore, I think, is a very um, good historical tool, because essentially we go back far enough, folklore and storytelling are inherently connected to history um, anyway. Mm -hmm. I just have to say, uh, when you did your podcast on, I think it was the horses, you talked about water horses or that kind of thing. And I'm a huge Julie Fowlis fan. She's a Gaelic singer from Scotland. And she actually has a song, basically a cautionary tale about the water horse. And it's just reminding me so much of the song. You're going to have to like send me a link of that because that sounds 100% my cup of tea. <laughs> well, it's all in Gaelic, <laughs> so you won't understand. But I'll love it anyway. That's 100% my cup of tea. I swear, I, I really want to do a full episode on war horses because they don't pop up only in Scotland and Ireland. I've said a lot of throwaway comments about them because they're one of my favourite um, folkloric creatures. So I have talked a lot about water horses and water creatures, but I want to do a whole episode dedicated on them just because they're not only in Scotland and Ireland, but they pop up in Wales as well. And yeah, there's this... It's a big example, actually, of folklore in the landscape, because I think that a lot of um, folklore is influenced by the landscape. So for water horses, it's more a cautionary tale of, yeah, don't go by the water because you'll get, you know, a water horse will jump out at you. But really, it could be just as easily translated as don't go near the water because you might fall and drown. If you go too close to the sea, you might get pulled in and you might drown. Um, don't go near this lock because, again, you might fall in and drown. <laughs> A lot of cautionary tales and a lot of evil folklore creatures um, connected to the landscape are actually, you can argue that they're, they're cautionary tales and they have um, a real strong logic to them as well. Yeah, she has another one about, uh, I think it's like forest nymphs or fairies. I'm not quite sure because it's in Gaelic. I don't understand all of it. But it's the two little girls, they take a shortcut in the woods and then one little girl gets taken by fairies and she never comes back. It's a very sad story. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, a lot of these stories um, are obviously explaining like real life things, you know, fairies taking away children or, for example, selkies, you know, seal people. So, you know, you, you'd have uh, there's examples of male selkies or examples. There are folk tales of male selkies coming into the house of like a young woman um, lying with her and then she has a child and then the child disappears and the folktale is oh the selkie or it could just as easily be a fairy you know you've got Tam Lin as well these fairies have lain with these mortal women um, they've had a child and then the child has gone to, with the father or with the mother to this like fairy realm and it's just it, it's really explaining this kind of having sex out of wedlock really isn't it and you've also got, you know, stories of changeling children. You see them now through the lens of 21st century. And you can say, you could argue that maybe some of these children were autistic, or maybe some of these children had other sorts of um, things that we don't, that we understand now, but that people didn't understand hundreds of years ago. So they were just, oh, it's a changeling child. My child isn't acting like every other child in the village. It's a changeling child. You know, the fairies have taken my child and given me one of theirs. Um, but really, like I said, today we could probably explain why some children might be different to the majority of other children. Um, but I think it's interesting, again, that folklore has these examples of situations that are very real 
and occur very often and you see the same kind of narratives and stories pop up in various cultures just because they are very kind of universal human experiences so missing children and things like that must happen in all cultures so there's going to be various versions of myths and legends of you know creatures stealing away children to reflect that and if you were to take folklore and then you look at nursery rhymes do you see the link between them and you feel that folklore help fuel nursery rhymes possibly and that's what's kind of kept on now yeah well it's more it's more like folklore is just you know storytelling isn't it so any form of storytelling and communal storytelling especially so yeah nursery rhymes and fairy tales and um any really form of literature i suppose you could say stems from folklore and storytelling but yeah certainly um nursery rhymes and fairy tales especially can trace their roots to oral stories and um, storytelling and folklore in that way, definitely. Mm -hmm. And what do you think folklore says about a culture or an identity? Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, um, as I said earlier, I think folklore holds up a mirror to people. So it reflects back how people view the world. And that's why I'm so interested in landscape and folklore, because it's not only, you know, not only does folklore reflect um, emotional responses from people, it also reflects how we see the world. You know, I'm not the first, you know, I'm just one in a long, long, long line of people who have brought up um, the connection between landscape and folklore. Um, I know that a lot of people have described the landscape, described magic and folklore seeping into the landscape. But I actually have the kind of reverse view of it. I see that the landscape has influenced this magic and has influenced this folklore in a lot of ways. So, for example, in Cornwall especially, we have, we're, we're a peninsula to start off, we're a sea peninsula, so obviously three sides of us are surrounded by the ocean, so we have a lot of coast and a lot of beaches and a lot of coves, so of course there are going to be mermaids and, and other sea creatures like that, um, but we also have a lot of moorland, um, we've got something quite ominous um, called the, the Cornubia batholith, which is um, like a millions and millions and millions of years old gigantic granite mass that's basically lying beneath almost the whole of Cornwall. Um, so it sounds quite ominous, the Cornubia Batholith. I think that's what it's called, but I quite like it. But it means, um, there might be other factors as well, but it means that a lot of our moorland, um, a lot of our landscape has lots of exposed granite rock um, not only in terms of natural formation. So, you know, Bobman Moor is very well known. And you've got things like the cheese ring, which is a, it's not a big wedge of cheese. That would be great, wouldn't it? It's just a big stack of stones, one on top of each other. And it looks like a giant has gone and stacked these stones. It's natural formation. It's been naturally formed. But then on our moorland, we also have standing stones and coits and cairns um, and barrows and all sorts of other things using that granite. Um, and my point is that we have lots of folklore in Cornwall about giants and giants are always associated near and concentrated to these areas that have lots of exposed granite rock. So that landscape, you know, of the, the huge boulders of granite rock and things like that, and the cheese ring that looks like it has been purposefully placed, you know, carefully one stone on top of each other. It looks like a giant has done that. That has really 
in my opinion, influenced this belief in giants, you know, you look back far enough in the literature and you see various historians believing that Cornwall was once inhabited by a race of giants. And it's logical in a way when you look at our landscape, when you look at all this granite rock. It's not, you know, it's not stupid. It, it does it does make sense when you look at the landscape. And like I said, it makes sense to have mermaid fairy tales and to have things like that when you recognise that we are a sea peninsula. And I think that must be the same in every land of the world. You know, whatever land features that you have, whatever landmarks or whatever it has to reflect the stories that are told. You know, you're not going to have sea creatures and water spirits in um, a land that has no water, for example. It makes sense to me that the landscape would influence the stories that we tell, but also how we view the world. So, yeah, I've gone on a massive tangent, as I always do. So hopefully, hopefully I've kind of um, answered. I can't remember what the exact question was. (laughs) It's okay. No, no, not at all. Yeah, when you look at the concept of folklore and landscape, it brings to mind certain things that might be passed down that's very connected to the landscape. So it's definitely linked. Uh, And then you look at mythologies, and I think that folklore and mythologies have a very strong tie. Yeah, definitely. I mean, folklore is interesting because it kind of encapsulates, you know, stories and also folk customs and things like that. And it's a little bit you know, less academic in some ways, because obviously it's, it's of the folk, it's of the people. Um, but mythology, again, you know, it's just former theologies, really. You know, it's, it's the gods, it's the pantheon of gods, it's the legends, you know, it incorporates folklore as well, mythology. So whilst um, they're not completely the same, mythology and folklore, they definitely overlap a lot. So when we look at folklore, we also think of perhaps storytellers. How do storytellers and the landscape also connect? Um, it's a great question, actually. Um, all right, okay, for example, so the Mabinogion. The Mabinogion is the oldest form of prose literature in Britain. So it's written down, it's literature. But the Mabinogion would have, is argued that, and it seems very, very, very likely that it would have been written down because of a long tradition of oral storytelling. So um, a lot of these stories, although written down, they would have been originally performed physically. They would have been performed orally and physically. They wouldn't have been written down. They would have been performed to an audience, you know. So there are um, some examples within the Mabinogion and probably a lot of literature in the same vein that would have been performed beforehand that have references to the landscape and things like that. So in the second branch of the Mabinogion, uh, I covered it in in my podcast. You've got Bran, the king, Benedigidfran, I think um, you could pronounce it, or Bran, Bran the um, the blessed. He is a giant king of Britain, but nowhere does it say that he is a giant. You know, this story doesn't say that he's a giant. You only learn that he's a giant when later on it says, oh yeah, Bran who has never had a house to, to live in, Bran who has never been able to fit inside a house. So you think, hang on a minute, never, never been able to fit inside a house. That's a bit strange. Um, and also there's a reference to Bran laying his body down and having his troops um, and his men walk across his body as a bridge. You know, he lays down in the ocean and acts as a bridge. And again, it just sort of comes out of nowhere. So you're reading it, imagining that Bran is like a normal man. And then that comes out of nowhere. And you're like, what? That's really strange. But 
if you think about it, if this was performed by a storyteller, by a bard, um, physically performed, when they talk about Bran, they could raise out their arms, they could stand up tall um, to give you this sense of, you know, hugeness, a vastness, something that you can't convey in written word, not unless you use a reference like that to explain it, or unless you just write, oh, and he is a giant lol. Um, but it doesn't really have the same kind of impact, does it? So I can imagine a storyteller physically raising their body up, you know, opening up their arms. Um, So that's one example of it. But storytellers are really, they are that, they are telling a story. And a lot of them obviously use folklore to do that. They're influenced by folklore a lot. And, you know, you can see storytellers when you go back far and far enough. Like I said, the bards in medieval Wales and probably um, equivalent versions all across the world. These were storytellers, but they were also historians. You know, they were performers, but they had many different functions. So, yes, storytelling and oral history must really have a place in connection with folklore because obviously we've written down a lot of folklore now so you can read about them in books i have lots of books on my desk right now you know about cornish folklore and things like that but originally these would have been stories that grandparents told their grandchildren and things like that i mean i sometimes get emails from people that say oh thank you for your show because it reminds me of when my granddad would like tell me stories about um whatever creature it is and i think oh my god that's so cool that people are still experiencing that i mean my dad wouldn't tell me stories of like Welsh um, folklore or myths and legends or things like that. But he would, when we went for walks in the woods, he would often like tell me and my sister stories about magical creatures that lived in the forest because he was very much a fan of Tolkien and Terry Pratchett and things like that. And interestingly enough, all those fantasy authors took a lot of influence from mythology and folklore and from Celtic folklore as well. So it all comes back around. It all comes back around. Again, it's another tangent, so I hope that makes sense. (laughs) Not at all. It's never a tangent to me. (laughs) Good. And actually, talking about language sparked a question. So when you look at folklore and you look at language, I'm guessing it's very tied together? Well, it must be, yeah. Um, Especially because, obviously, a lot of... um, oral history a lot of things that were meant to be it's it's sometimes strange for folklorists because obviously we're studying um obviously we can go and talk to people within communities and hear their stories but a lot of what you're studying is written down so you're not always getting the nuances of what we mentioned earlier things like the Mabinogion you're not always getting the nuances of physical performance and things like that but it must have happened where various languages have their own kind of idiosyncrasies and, and things like that and there must be various folk tales that really when spoken orally and when performed orally would have really um, relied on that because obviously it would have been in that language it would have been for people you know that spoke that language so I mean I can't give you any examples because like I said when you're when you're studying it you're really reading what's written down but it must be absolutely tied language and folklore and there must have been various folk tales that would have been that would have had like hidden references and things like that that would have only been understood you know by people speaking that language and that get lost in translation if you will. And so if you're looking then at language, landscape, and sort of uh, the culture around whatever you're studying, you have to delve into that also? 
Yeah, I mean, like I said, when you're like a folklorist or whatever, you're reading a lot of written down words. But why I'm so interested in landscape is because, yeah, you do have a different relationship then. You can start looking at the landscape, you can start reading it, and you can start piecing together these stories um, with the land. So not only giants, not only water horses and things like that, but there are also lots of landscape features like crossroads and things like that that have lots of banshees connected to them um there are not only like ancient landscapes but there are industrial landscapes that also have their own stories and things you have the knockers down mines so you've got the cobblinell in welsh folklore and the knockers in cornish folklore which went over to america and possibly canada as well and became tommy knockers so these little creatures or piskies or fairies, whatever, these little diminutive gnome type creatures that would knock on the walls of mines and then to alert miners that there was going to be a disaster, that the mine was going to collapse in on itself and to get out. So not only do ancient landscapes kind of have their own folklore inherently tied to them, but also industrial landscapes as well that are much more modern. So that sort of speaks to the power of storytelling anyway, just in terms of it's an evolving thing. It's ever changing. We are always reacting to our landscapes and to our industries and how we kind of live, if you will. Like I've just started working in a China clay museum and it's the only china clay museum in the uk and possibly in europe and maybe the world who knows um but china clay is it's a mineral called kaolin and you can see it you know across the world but for some reason some of the purest and best examples of it came from southwest england and cornwall especially maybe it was because of that you know cornubia batholith i just love saying that i don't know what it actually means i'm, I'm not a geologist i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> We have, you know, China clay industry is this huge, huge industry in Cornwall. And yet I haven't been able to find loads of folklore associated with it. So that's that uh, to Jane listening, because she's obviously listening. That will be what I hope to write my dissertation on is just this, that particular type of industrial landscape and how it affected identity and folklore and folk customs. Because the land that you live on does heavily influence your identity there was a poet that was deaf and blind um i believe he lost his hearing when he was 19 and then became blind when he was 39 called jack clemo or clemo he was a cornish poet that grew up in clay country which is where i'm from by clay country i just mean this landscape that's very industrial very china clay industrial so the way it looks is that you have these huge white pyramid looking things that were basically um clay tips and then you'd have these great big pools beside them which were where you were mining for the china clay um and then you get like all the china clay slurry at the bottom is azure in color and very strange and otherworldly looking um but, you know, even though this poet was um, deaf and blind later on in life, for his whole life, he was so hugely influenced by the landscape. You know, it was describing how these China clay villages lived in the shadows of these great big domes, these great big pyramids, you know, um, his whole writing is about how influenced he is by the landscape that he lives on so landscape becomes a huge huge marker of identity and then again of folklore so it, it's all connected um there's also this brilliant folk singer called brenda wooten 
She's a Cornish folk singer. Absolutely amazing. I love her so much. And she has this song called The Land I Love. Um, I think it's on the album All of Me. Um, she has a website app that you can you can listen to it on. But it's called The Land I Love and it's about Cornwall. It's a very joyous song. It's very proud of being Cornish. But all of the lyrics are centred on the land. You know, the lyrics are things like by the sea and little white farm and it describes the stone on hills and flowers and the sea and all things like this and it's all about how the land is so important to Cornishness and Cornish identity you know like I said there are Cornish diaspora in America and in Canada and other places so ancestry and genealogy is very important to um, this idea of Cornish identity as well but I don't think that you can discredit how important the land is when a lot of Cornish historians or you know Cornish folk singers or whatever have talked about Cornwall they make reference to the land to the landscape like I said we have so much varied landscape here but it is so important you know the land influences everything um you know, if you live near the moors or if you live in this industrial China clay landscape or if you live by the beach or whatever, wherever you live, um, where you walk, where you spend your time, where you played as a child, it's all going to be influenced by the land. So it's going to have a huge factor in your identity. And of course, then the stories that we tell, the history that we share, um, our local communities are really based around this land or within this land. So it sounds kind of obvious, but also I don't know if people do think about, you know, the land in, in, in terms of their personal identities very, very often. Because sometimes I talk about it and people are like, oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> I know in your podcast you touch upon different regions. So you have, you know, the Cornish, Welsh, Irish, Scottish, and then yeah, Breton and Manx, probably. <laughs> Breton and Manx. Okay. Yes, the Isle of Man. Yeah, yeah. You speak about all these different Celtic regions with Celtic folklore, Celtic stories, Celtic mythologies. I know that you also mention often the ties between all these Celtic lands, but did you find that certain stories were very specifically tied to very specific landscapes that wasn't found anywhere else in those regions, in those Celtic regions you've talked about already? Yeah, in a way, because um, I'm very careful with it, because I know that there are arguably a lot of other places in the world that are Celtic and that have Celtic ties, you know, the Iron Age Celtic tribes and things like that. Um, I'm always very wary of saying there was never one united Celtic nation. So it's only in hindsight that we have looked at these various nations and we have said, um, oh, look, it's Celtic because these were very, very similar types of people. So it's not, it's, there would have been, links between them you know maybe sometimes physical links or actual links between them but a lot of the time it's just in hindsight we look at these various places that have lots of similarities and to answer your question because this time I haven't gone on like a long enough tangent to forget the question yeah there are certain landscape features that are very prominent here that do reflect certain stories so for example I know that Ireland has lots of you know granite rock and stuff like that as well I know that Britain in general the British Isles in general we have a lot of exposed granite rock a lot of standing stones a lot of coits a lot of um, barrows and things like that so a lot of these 
old kind of um, burial sites as well. Arguably, you can link, obviously, you can link that back to people because they are man-made. So they were made by people. But now through time, they have become these features of the landscape and they have influenced their own types of stories. So the Irish have a lot of stories of the other world and of fairy people that come from the mounds, um, that come from things like that. But then... The Welsh also have their versions of the other world. And if you look at archaeological evidence, you can see votive offerings left near stones and dolmens or left near pools and bodies of water and also left near sort of these mounds. Piskies and fairies and creatures like that, I find them very interesting because they pop up in all of the Celtic nations. They all have their own versions of the Pisky and they're all linked. A lot of them are linked to these landscape features. Brittany has the Coreds who are said to like linger near dolmens. And like I said, um, the Irish have their fairies that are linked to um, mounds and, and other things like that that protrude from the earth. And the Scottish have a lot of standing stones as well. So a lot of these key landscape features that you can see in the UK, and maybe you can see them elsewhere. Um, I just, I, I've never been very many places, so I wouldn't know. But especially in, in the British Isles um, and the Celtic regions, there are a lot of um, a lot of exposed granite rock, which lends itself to a lot of stories. And also the whole of the UK is an island. So, you know, when you look far enough, obviously there's a lot of landlocked areas, but when you look far enough, it's all surrounded by coast. So we're all going to have our own versions of people sailing over. We have had lots of people invading us and coming over and whatever. And we are going to have lots of stories connected to the sea and connected to maritime activities and things like that. So yeah, there are features of the landscape um, that you can find in one or more or all of the Celtic regions um, that they will have shared and that they will have produced their own very similar stories based around that oh that's very very interesting to see how different they can be because of the landscape even though it's sort of the same basic story yeah definitely because like i said you you can have fairy creatures and other world creatures um in the cultures all around the world you know you've got loads of different types of creatures that are actually really similar in their behavior in their their circumstances in where they fit themselves into these narratives um that are really similar but also very, very different. So I love folklore because you can trace the similarities between various cultures, but you can also trace differences, which I think is great. So like in a big kind of global view, you know, human beings are all human beings. We all have our own universal kind of desires and fears and wants and, and things like that. But each region will have its own key identities and um, each region will have its own stories to tell so you can see this great big overarching similarities like the hero's journey and all these different versions of the same story that pop up in all different cultures but each region will have its own unique flavor which i think is really great because like so like you said you can have these stories that are very similar but also because of the landscape being different will also be very influenced by that and will also be very different as well it's yeah it's great <laughs> What about traditions linked to folklore? Have you come across any interesting traditions that are linked strictly to folklore? Yes. Um, so especially in Cornwall, um, a lot of the a lot of folk customs and festivals and things like that. Um, there's a there's a real interest in things like this at the moment. 
So a lot of things are being revived or being created. So probably a key example of this is that in St. Agnes, um, it's a, a village town in Cornwall, they have a festival called um, Bolster Day. And that is entirely derived from the folklore of the Bolster giant. Um, so I don't know if you've listened or... I did, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you did. So you, so you know, I'm not going to reiterate the whole thing. But basically, um, Bolster Giant, for your listeners, don't worry, I'm not going to say the whole story. <laughs> it was interesting. <laughs> the giant is horrible. He's called Bolster the Giant. He's horrible. And he meets his fate by dying by this very clever woman called St. Agnes. Um, so she says, oh, if you really love me, then stand on top of this pool and cut yourself and fill this pool up with your blood. But she doesn't tell him that it's actually bottomless and it goes into the ocean. So, you know, he stands on top of this pool bleeds to death because it, the blood never fills up this pool and obviously then the rocks are all blood red so you know it's got the story of the giant's blood staining the rocks but now saint agnes have a yearly event called bolster day so they parade this like giant bolster um through the town and all that again so it's influenced by folklore um and then you've got wassailing and things like that in various regions of the uk wales and somerset um, and now cornwall as well where you have this custom of like knocking on someone's door and being like hello let me in and then they'll be inside and they'll be like no go away and you have this back and forth until eventually you go inside that person's home and you drink ale or whatever but all of these folk customs these these festivals these um, processions or whatever a lot of them can really trace their roots back to folklore and back to beliefs and back to certain creatures and things like that so yeah i think the bolster giant is the, the best example i can give you but definitely there are traditions associated with folklore um, and that's just a big that's like a big tradition but you can also have little things that you do like for example old wives tales you know there are behaviors that we do throughout childhood and throughout our lives sometimes influenced by what our mothers or grandmothers or great-grandmothers told us you know these little wives tales um and little old wives tales are a form of folklore and folkloric belief so yeah there are all these little things that we do that will be influenced by the stories that the people of the past have told Talking a little bit about, I guess, community events, I know you wanted to mention community and folklore, so I'm not sure what example you wanted to give, but have you an example? Or so community, I think a lot of the time now, um, there's this really strong resurgence. It's why my podcast seems to be doing um, okay. And I, I'm, I'm shocked by that, that people want to actively listen to just me ramble on. But it's because there is this really strong resurgence in an interest in folklore and folk customs heritage identity and things like that sometimes people take it too far and you have you know i don't want to get too political on your podcast but you'll you'll have people that um are far right and believe that their folk customs or whatever are just for their culture whatever um i won't go too far into that but it's just that's one way just general discrimination yeah yeah very very much so so you'll have that version of it but there is also a less strong, more kind of overarching example of just people that are suddenly interested in, you know, not only where they're from, but also just the sense of community and, and belonging and, and heritage. So it doesn't have to have like nasty, dark undertones of, oh, yes, my heritage and, you know, whatever. A lot of the time it's just people are enchanted by this idea of where their great, great, great grandparents or whatever were from or whatever. There's power in that. And that's absolutely valid to feel that way. 
And I think that there is this strong interest now in old in folklore and folk customs because and um, there's a there's a lot of reasons for this, but I think that the internet in some ways um distances us from people but also brings us together so physically i think there is a lot of communities that in real life you know in real life that feel like they're kind of disintegrating and breaking up there's a number of reasons for this but i suppose the internet could be one of them but you have this interest now from people for various different reasons in identity and in community. So like I said, some people take it too far and they can be quite toxic and dangerous in how they view it. But some people, it's really just, I don't know how to explain it, but, you know, growing up, my father was from Wales and my mother was from Cornwall. And I don't know if, I don't think my sister really had quite the same interest in these types of things as I did. So it's not something that's universal, but for some people, there's this real feeling that you're trying to get at you know there's like something out there I don't know if it's like these stories or if it's heritage or identity whatever there's something out there that you're kind of looking for and I think that a lot of people are feeling that way now so that there's this real strong interest in folklore and folk customs because people want to connect to community because people want to connect to their identity their heritage but also it doesn't have to be just something that's you know in your genetic line for example i'm interested in the folklore and mythology of loads of other cultures and countries and um, you know, the reason i do my podcast is because i realized that there was a niche for it um, i realized that there wasn't a huge amount of content out there pertaining to it as the brilliant Celtic myth pod show. Um, but other than that, there wasn't a lot of podcasts about Celtic myths and legends. And I thought I can speak about this. And although I'm not Irish, I'm not Scottish, um, I do make that very clear. Um, in some ways, in some small way, especially for the Cornish and Welsh parts of it, um, I'm not speaking over anyone. You know, I can speak about my own relationship to these stories without, you know, insulting anyone, without speaking over anyone. So I love listening to podcasts and mythology and folklore podcasts about people really relating their own heritage and relating their own stories from their own cultures um, because it's so great and people are so interested in that. So, you know, there's communities now just on Twitter, you know, you've got Folklore Thursday and things like that. There are and our, and our podcasting communities as well. There are whole communities on Twitter just based around these subjects. So I think there's whole communities of people now that are just interested in folklore. You know, you've got Folk Horror Revival on Facebook as well and Twitter. All these people that have come together from all these different parts of the world and we're all interested in like one topic so again there'll be a whole community based on that i don't know if that's because of what the internet has done or there's various factors that go into this but if you look far back enough obviously before the internet before we were connected so much to people and um, when people really just lived in their own little villages and whatever that would be a community so that own community would have its own storytelling would have its own customs and things like that so community is such an interesting topic for me because it can be so small but then it can also be so huge and it can incorporate just local regional places but then it can also take up these interesting spaces on the internet as well so um, I definitely think that there is this interest now in folklore just for folklore's sake for some people it will be for various reasons for some people it will just be because they're interested in learning about their own history and heritage all that of their grandparents and things like that and for some people it will be a little bit of everything and it will also just be a bit of, oh, I'm really interested in stories and storytelling and for the sake of it. So there'll be interest in folklore just for folklore's sake. So, yeah, I think. 
No, absolutely. It's funny how you can identify with a culture that's not yours. That's it's a very bizarre thing. <laughs> yeah, and you totally can. It's there's I, I really hate this idea that um only, you know, if you've got if you can trace your great 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 grandparents back to the same tiny little region of land, only then can you be interested. If that's nonsense. That's such nonsense. You can be interested in the stories and heritage and history of all places and really that's again why I love folklore so much because you can see these same types of stories that really hit these human universal desires and beliefs and fears that we all have um, and they get translated through these stories so you can see similar stories pop up across cultures and they're so interesting because like I said they reflect things like love and adventure and death and horror and tragedy all things that all people can relate to in one way or another. Absolutely and I guess you talked a little bit about writing down the folklore or the storytellers wrote it down eventually do you feel like there are advantages and disadvantages to having things written down? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, thank you for asking it, actually. Um, yeah, you see a lot of, for example, in the Industrial Revolution, you had a lot of academics, a lot of, you know, a lot of middle class academics, which were suddenly very interested in this idea of, oh, you know, Britain's getting industrialised and we must record the stories of the rural people as if the rural people couldn't record their own stories in their own way. You know, it would have been through oral storytelling and maybe some written down as well. And it would have been from passing down stories and from family to family and through the community and things like that you know you had this this strong desire of oh we must save these stories for the future um i say that in a mocking voice because i suppose the attitude behind it was kind of condescending in a way but also I mean, isn't that what I'm doing now with my podcast? Isn't that what a lot of us kind of amateur folklorists are doing now? We are either writing down or recording these stories because people are interested in them, because we want to share them with a wider community of people. So in some ways, I think that this idea of always writing something down, that there's only value in something once it's written down is quite toxic. You know, there is value in oral stories. And I wish I love when people email me and tell me that their grandparents told them a certain story because um, I think that's such a beautiful thing. It's such a beautiful thing to have stories passed down orally through families. I think that's wonderful. Um, it's magical. But then again, there is also value in writing things down. It can't be the be all end all, but there is value in writing things down so that everyone then can enjoy it, can read it. And then it, it is recorded, you know. It is recorded then. We can study it. You can read it for fun, but you can also study it as well. And then you can use it to study the people of the past. So, yeah, there are good elements and bad elements about only having things written down. So I think the negative aspect of it is, like I said, um, a lot of it is quite condescending. It's a very condescending place. Oh, we, we must record the traditions of these people. So there will be a lot of books and a lot of works on various cultures that will be quite racist, for example. And it's not that that culture itself is racist. It's that the people writing about them might have been racist. They might have, or any other kind of bigoted way to view another group of people. They might have been, like I said, they might have been condescending or they might have... Um, if you're writing down the stories of a people that are not your own, 
and you aren't 100% familiar with the way that they view the world and the way that they live um, and interact with the world, and those people don't have a written record to contradict your own, then you are going to have elements that will be quite bigoted, I suppose. You are going to have elements that will get lost in translation. So I think in some ways it's good to write things down. It's good to record things because you have something to study. But in other ways, I do think that the writing down of the past of folklore and things like that has been problematic in its own way because it's been from people that weren't from that community. So perhaps weren't the best um, people to reflect those stories. I hope that makes sense. Absolutely. It actually reminds me a little bit of learning a new language that's you're not surrounded by, let's say, like Gaelic in, you know, Northern Ontario, Canada is not very common, but you have to learn about the culture because the language has a part of the key, you know, linguistically, but the culture also affects the language very much. And it just reminds me a lot of what you're saying, where the folklorists are writing it down, but if they don't really understand or even try to figure out a little bit the culture, they might do a disservice to the actual folklore. Yeah, you're so right. Honestly, you've hit the nail on the head because... How are you going to tell a lot of the nuances of these stories in an authentic way or in a way that makes sense if you're not fully versed in the whole context of the story itself, if if you're not totally aware of the people and their ways, if you will? Like, how are you going to represent that story the best way that you can if you're not of them, if that makes sense? I don't want to be like a very us, us against them, you know, but... No, no, no. (laughs) even knowing the basic understanding I know in Gaelic I was very surprised by how many words they had for fog now where I live we don't have a lot of fog or we have you know maybe two or three types of fog but in the rural Gaelic countries like Scotland they have a variety of landscapes a variety of types of fog so they have a lot of different expressions oh there you go it's a perfect example of landscape and weather influencing cultures (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's so true, isn't it? Because if you if you live in a part of the world where you don't have these certain landscape features or you don't have these weather features, well, you're not really going to have words for them, are you? But if you live in Ireland and there's bloody fog everywhere all the time, you've got misty moors, um, you know, even in English, you've got, you know, fog and mist and all these sort of different words, but basically the same type thing. Um, yeah, we, we can have loads of words to describe it because we see it all the bloody time. <laughs> we, have, we have a lot of snow, so we have a lot of ways of talking about snow here. <laughs> Yeah, whereas we just have snow and like, you know, it's just snow and we, and we barely see snow. I mean, Cornwall is, um, like I said, it's, it's the peninsula of the UK. So it's right at the bottom of the UK. Yeah, it's it's supposed to have the warmest climate in the UK. I'm not I'm not 100% sure on that at this point. We get pretty cold. Um, well, cold to me, um, which would be which would be like tropical, I'm assuming, to most Canadians. <laughs> it would be very different, I'm, I'm assuming. <laughs> Yeah, it's much drier here. So the cold is manageable. <laughs> you just layer up. <laughs> Lots of wool. <laughs> Whereas it gets like, you know, naught degrees here and suddenly you're like, oh my God, I'm freezing to death. Whereas that temperature would be like not that cold to loads of other people in the world. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, it's all relative in what you're used to. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> So I wanted to ask you if you're comfortable talking about your degree a little bit, just sort of what is Celtic studies? Maybe somebody is interested in looking into it for a master's. Yeah, sure. Um, It's interesting because um, obviously, uh, like I said, there was never like one united Celtic nation. So your Celtic studies could be in relation to Cornwall or Wales or Ireland 
or Scotland or Isle of Man or Brittany, or it could be tracing similarities between all of them. Um, but really, it's um, a discipline that's using various forms of like studying history. So I've had to read um, medieval monastic voyage tales from Ireland. I've had to read about Welsh saints. I've had to read about um, Welsh medieval laws. I've had to read about more modern things. I've had to read about the Iron Age Celts. Um, it's very, very open-ended Celtic studies. You can really choose, depending on your course and your lecturers and their interests, you can really map out what it is that you're interested in. So for some people, it will be linguistic. They will be interested in um, primarily in languages. But for some people, it will be very, um, I guess, like Celtic spirituality, that type of thing. So you'll be interested in legends and the other world and Arthurian legends and things like that. Whereas some people will be very, uh, don't get wrong, I love the, the otherworldly stuff as well. But my dissertation now seems to be very focused on identity and landscape and things like that. And I'm looking primarily at an industrial landscape. So when you get to the end of it, you know, you can you can study all your various topics. But when you get to the dissertation, it's very open ended, really. Anything you can think of that pertains to these Celtic regions, whether it's storytelling or folklore or history or language or identity or any type of like, you know, cultural references, anything that you can think of, I guess, could be incorporated into Celtic studies. That's a very exciting way. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting, it's a very interesting degree. Like you're using, um, you're looking at archaeology, you're looking at um, old literature, you're looking at old laws, you're looking at all different types of sources in which to study yeah in a general sense it's just very very open-ended and like I said, i'm doing it distance learning and i think i think that one i've influenced at least one other person in the world to do an ma in celtic studies because they they heard about that i was doing it so um yeah if i could influence just one more person um it's very niche it's very very niche i can't guarantee that you're going to get a job out of it i can't guarantee i'm going to get a job out of it <laughs> but in terms of just studying and interests it's a very open-ended degree and it's very 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 interesting and gives you a lot of scope to study mm-hmm. and skills for sure. Yeah, I suppose so. but in, term, when it, in terms of research, definitely, because you're, you're looking at a lot of different avenues in which to find your sources of information. But also, I, I guess, yeah, in any kind of degree, you're going to get research skills and writing skills and stuff like that. So it's def- it's not worthless. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that I'm doing it. <laughs> it's never worthless. It's never lost. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's going to be useful in one way or another. <laughs> Absolutely. I tell my kids this all the time. Um, it's not worthless. You've learned so many skills that you're going to use throughout your life because of it. Oh, I wanted to do, um, um, I wanted to go to drama school. I wanted to study theatre. Um, that was that was my big, big, big dream growing up, all the way growing up from being a child, being a teenager, right up until I was 18. That was my big dream. Um, but because that was my big dream, and I, you know, I did a lot of theatre whenever when I was younger, that has led me to what I'm doing. I didn't go to drama school. My, my, my parents vetoed it. They were like, no, no, you, you won't get a job out there, whatever. Um, it's not but it's not useless though those skills that I learned just from doing you know school and college um because college in the UK is like 16 to 18 so it's just basically like the end of school but all those skills that I learned from it have really just traveled with me and have stayed with me so a big reason why I'm doing my podcast is because I like storytelling because I like some sort of form of performing and and acting and that sort of thing and I think in the future 
as well I would do a lot I've got loads of ideas for you know films and tv shows and a lot of it involves acting and performing so like you said any thing that you study any subject that you study will have its worth and will shape who you are you know whether that's for for good or bad (laughs) absolutely and I generally try to ask this question when I can so if you had a time machine I know it's such a very cheesy (laughs) question but if you had a time machine and there was a place in history that you could visit and come back safely either to partake in or just observe do you have a time period that really interests you? Well, let me tell you, Rosie, I'm a big fan of Outlander. So, <laughs> no. I mean, if I could go back and find a, a six foot four hot Scottish man, then, you know, even if he's from the, the 18th century, I would go back. I would go back for that, definitely. Um, it's a cheesy question, I know. <laughs> It's a really interesting thing to ask, isn't it, really? Because especially as a historian as well, you're so, calling myself a historian, that's so like conceited, but I guess I am (laughs) in a way. Um, Yeah, so, but you are, you're studying history. So of course, of course, you're going to get asked, you know, if if you could go back, would you? But then you think, when you do study history, you think, oh God, you know, but all the terrible things that happened as well. And you think, oh, you know, they might, might not brush their teeth so much and they might have been, you know, raping and murdering people all the time and, but I think would I, would I go into like the future somehow of a time machine? And I don't know. I mean, there's a great book called um, Hard to Be a God. And the whole premise, it's science fiction book and it was written in like Soviet Russia. And the whole premise is um, that you have these scientists from one world um, and they visit all these other worlds that are like going through their medieval periods and they just observe. So these are the gods. So they, they wear like medieval garb or whatever but they have like a tiny 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 camera on it that like observes all of the people but they can't step in to change or to influence anything and that's the big thing isn't it with like um time jumping or going from one going from your world to something completely completely different is that would it be ethical to change it in any way um and I don't know if I would be very good at just being a bystander at just kind of standing back and just observing something but also I have absolutely no skills (laughs) I have no measurable skills so I would be what could I offer people I mean I can clean historic objects so I guess <laughs> and they, they won't be historic then though they'll be contemporary then so it's just I'll just be cleaning things um so I don't know I don't have any skills really to take me into the past but what type of time period I mean you seem to like the medieval time period is there a location that you want to visit to see either it could be bare landscape to see you know prior to industrialization or it can be anything really it, there's no there's no good answer to this oh you know what you know what I'd love to go and find out who really bloody built Stonehenge, you know. (laughs) Who built Stonehenge and why they did it and how they did it. That's what I'd do. I'd, I'd go in a little bubble, a little bubble that no one else could see me and I would just observe the building of Stonehenge and then I'd come back and gloat over it to all the historians today. I know, I know who built Stonehenge. I know how they did it. And it would be great. And I can debunk all of the crazy people that believe it was like aliens or whatever. I don't know if you believe that. I'm sorry. I'm calling you crazy. <laughs> but that's what that's what I do. <laughs> I'm a historian. Come on. I'd find out the secrets of Stonehenge. <laughs> Any peoples of the past that pop up in like pop culture and things like that that are kind of 
you know, well-known in, in a way, are only viewing them through the lens of academics of the past. And obviously academics of the past had their own agendas. And then obviously when something becomes mainstream, then it's adopted by authors and adopted by other people as well outside of academia and artists. And they they always have their own agenda and their own romanticization of things. And another reason why I love folklore, because when you're listening to the voices of the actual people reflecting their own stories and reflecting their own cultures, then you're getting a lot more out of it, really. And like I said, a lot of folklore is written down and it is written down by people outside of those communities. Um, but it's so different to how academics and authors and artists and things like that are going to represent something because they're representing something that's very romantic and very not authentic in a way. And there's a really key example in Cornwall, actually, with the whole Arthurian legends. So we have Tintagel Castle. So um, it's owned by English Heritage, which is an organisation that looks after a lot of castles and a lot of ruins in the UK. So I think I think they look after Stonehenge. <laughs> I think it's English Heritage or is it National Trust? I don't know. Um, but that's what they do. And they have really 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 driven in the the Arthurian narrative of Tintagel Castle so they've really gone home with King Arthur was born here so some people hate that some people complain about the disnifying of the Cornish landscape and the disnifying of Cornish history so they really hate that they're really not a fan of it at all this romanticization of the history of Cornwall and the landscape of Cornwall in this way but arguably you can say that because these romanticizations of Cornwall and of King Arthur and this and the landscape have existed for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years then it's authentic in its own way to tell the history of that relationship of that legend with that landscape if you know what I mean so for example there were kings I think there's like an 11th century king or something that built his castle on the site of Tintagel because of the myths and legends of King Arthur associated with that part of the land. So it's not that King Arthur actually was born on that land. That's, you know, I, I don't think that's the story that they should tell. They do say that a little bit, and I think they should stop that a little bit. It's a little bit silly. Um, but where they get things right, where they get things really right, is where they focus on just the history of the belief of this idea of King Arthur in this area. So some ways the romanticization of like history is its own history and is its own has its own authentic um way anyway but sometimes it is really silly so when looking at vikings for example like a lot of it is not true a lot of what the victorians said and believed about vikings and a lot of what we believe about vikings now is not true it's seen through that lens of the victorians and other historians but i guess there is a whole subject onto itself about studying the history of how the Vikings were interpreted. And that's like a separate thing, isn't it? Than how they actually were. Um, so it's the same with Tintagel, really. It's, you've got the history of, of Tintagel itself, but then you've got the history of how people have viewed Tintagel itself. So it's kind of interesting. That those are two completely different things. So I wonder, does folklore affect history or does history affect folklore? Is that just one of those questions that we'll never figure out? <laughs> yeah, I think it is one of those things that we'll never figure out, really, because, like I said, um, when you go back far enough, folklore was inherently tied to history. But again, it's this romanticised view of history. So a lot of bards and a lot of people that were connected to kings or they were telling stories to kings about the king's genealogy, a lot of it would have been fibbing. You know, a lot of it would have been making things up. So when Virgil 
wrote the Aeneid um, for Augustus, for the Emperor Augustus. The whole story of the Aeneid is about like these the people that founded Rome after like the fall of Troy, and they go and they found Rome, and it's all about how these people are the of the ancestors of Augustus to prove that he is like the the rightful emperor of Rome. Um, so it's it's all fibbing really, but it's authentic in its own way, isn't it? So a lot of it would be just making up history to appease this king or appease this emperor in a way. But then it becomes history in its own right when we study the Aeneid just for studying old literature in its own right. Um, So yeah, I think history and folklore and storytelling and legends and mythology and things like that are all tied up together like inherently. Oh, I absolutely agree. I don't think you can really split off sort of with a sharp knife like all of those. No, you couldn't. And you would you want to, even if you could? I wouldn't. No, <laughs> it's intertwined. A Celtic knot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, a Celtic knot indeed. There's so much, so much built history. I mean, the UK, we're very, we're very lucky in the fact that it's a very old land. So we have a lot of built history not only like from the last hundred few hundred years but we have a lot of ancient history that you can physically see like dotted along the landscape so we're very lucky in that regard we definitely take it for granted here in the UK things like that when I worked at St Michael's Mount it was originally a monastery so like it was an 11th century monastery so the oldest part of the the family do live in the castle but the oldest part of the castle the church most of it was ruined when there was like a great big um, earthquake that came over from Portugal and like the aftermaths and ripples of it um, affected like Cornwall as well. And like, so most of the building was destroyed, but some of the oldest foundations, so some of like the oldest bits that still survived. Um, yeah. They're like 10th, 11th century. So they are really old. That stone has stories to tell. Um, so like when, when I turn off my ancient history brain, I'm like, no, 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 that's, really impressive that's really old but you know i don't know why sometimes we put so much um importance on buildings and things like that they're great but then you only have to look at like a stone like a piece of granite rock and you're like that is uh, millions of years old that's old <laughs> well look at the sea and you're like okay she's old <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the podcast just delighting us with all this folklore history essentially that you love so much and I guess enlightening us. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Hopefully you've got at least 20 minutes you can use from me. <laughs> I'm sure we'll have more. No, thank you for having me. It's been brilliant. I've uh, really enjoyed getting to wax lyrical about folklore. <laughs> thank you so much. Have a super good night, by the way. You too. Thank you. Bye. my goodness wasn't that absolutely fun actually it was so much fun that there will be a bonus episode with some of our random ramblings thank you so much sean i hope we can do this again for those who want a book recommendation there are many books on a variety of these topics and sean has kindly suggested that you email her if you have any questions and if you want more on the topic this will all be in the show notes but you can reach me on facebook instagram twitter at history You can also email me from the website historya.com. And though I still don't quite understand how the rating system works, apparently it helps people find me. So if you have time, I'd really appreciate that. 
And I can't forget to thank my husband, Jamie, our brood of kids, our family, our friends. Without them, I wouldn't be adventuring through history. Un grand merci. <laughs>